Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And you can always find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn Radio, GoodPods. Whatever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As far as social media, I am on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube as Let's Talk Micro, on X as Let's Talk Micro 1, LinkedIn Luis Plaza, and have an email address, which is Let's Talk Micro at Outlook.com, where you can definitely send any feedback, any suggestions. So please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, and if the app allows you to leave a review, please go ahead and do so. Definitely, as always, any feedback, any suggestions, they are welcome and appreciated. And if you haven't listened to the previous episode of Let's Talk Micro, please go ahead and do so. Great episode about malaria with Dr. Kenneth Gavina from the Indiana University School of Medicine. So it was definitely a very informative, educational episode. You know, Dr. Gavina goes over the life cycle of malaria. You know, we talk about the disease, symptoms, prevention, vaccines. So we definitely cover all the topics uh, regarding malaria. And he even talks about malaria and pregnancy. So if you haven't checked it out, please go ahead and do so. It was a great episode. You know, Dr. Gavita has some great energy, so check it out. And today's episode is, it's a part one of a two-part series about the story of a microbiologist regarding a hospital in Guinea, West Africa, a pediatric hospital. And, you know, he went over there and he's going to, you know, he tells the story. And so he went there, you know, he volunteered and he went there to train, um, you know, lab techs, you know, medical laboratory scientists. They go by many names in many parts of the world, but he went there to, you know, to train them in microbiology. And he talks about his experience. He talks about the challenges he faced while he was there, you know, with supplies, equipment. You know, he talks about his experience, you know, living in, in, in Guinea. And overall, you know, it was such a great episode, such a great story. And the guest name is Dr. Joel Mortensen, and he's the director of the Diagnostic Infectious Disease Testing Laboratory at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and his story you know it just it really makes you think about you know stuff that you don't really give it much thought you know when you you go to your work you know you do your job you know you go to the lab read your cultures do your testing and you experience issues with supplies and things like that but you don't think about that stuff you know we go to our training right we go to school we get trained we get a job and then some things you know they become second nature and we don't give it much thought but it was, it was such a great story, and, and, you know, I love the effort that Dr. Mortensen is making and, you know, going over there to train. And overall, the whole thing is great, right? Building a pediatric hospital. And one thing that stuck with me, you know, he said that, you know, he was asked when he, when he went there, like, why were they building a hospital for children, right? So this is something, right, that we don't think about it here, right? You know, we have... Hospitals for, you know, we have pediatric hospitals with great equipment and, you know, we take good care of our children. And so overall, you know, such a great story. So I hope you enjoy it. And in this part, you know, he talks about the founders of the hospital. You know, how did he hear about this opportunity? Um, you know, he, he visited hospitals and he talked about the equipment and, you know, the conditions and then he talks about the training the techs had and the education and, and, you know, what kind of experience they had. And then on part two, 
you know, he continues talking about the training, you know, about QC, about the things that, you know, like a, like power and, and refrigerators. So things that are part of a, of a laboratory, right? We have to make sure that we have a power source, that we have backup generators. So he talks about the conditions over there in, in that hospital in Guinea. So, and then, you know, he talks about the supply issues that they have. And then since they run on donations, you know, they get supplies from different manufacturers and, you know, he talks about lab coats and all, all sorts of supplies. So I hope you enjoy this, this two part series. I definitely enjoy listening to Dr. Mortensen. So let's go ahead and listen to part one. So as medical laboratory scientists, you know, we, we work in different types of labs, you know, large, small, but we never really, a lot of times, you know, we don't think about laboratories in other parts of the world. So today I have, you know, I read an article about a, a hospital uh, being set up in, uh, in Guinea, Africa. And I have a guest here that is going to talk about his experience with the training of laboratory biologists you know, which are medical laboratory scientists in other parts of the world, biomedical scientists. So he's going to be talking about his experiences. So with me today, I have Dr. Joel Mortensen. Dr. Mortensen, welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Louis, thank you very much for, for inviting me. I'm, I'm excited to have the opportunity to share some of the experiences that I've had in the last year. My pleasure. So let's go ahead and start with a, can you start with a quick introduction uh, for the audience, please? Sure. Um, as you said, I'm, I'm Joel Mortensen. I've directed the, the microbiology laboratories. We call them the Diagnostic Infectious Diseases Testing Laboratories, but it's microbiology for most of us. Um, here in Cincinnati Children's Hospital for the last, oh, nearly 25 years. I grew up in Ohio, went to the Ohio State University. Thank you very much. And uh, went off to go training, but then I was called back to Ohio, and uh, I really enjoyed my time back here. But recently, I've said there, 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 there's something else that must be a little bit more. Okay, and uh, so uh, what can you tell us? Uh, let's start about talking about this hospital in, in Guinea. So uh, what can you tell us about it? Sure. Um, Sacre-Cœur, or Sacred Heart, Sacre-Cœur Pediatric Hospital, we, we opened the doors in March of this year, um, been working on it for the past, oh, four or five years since before COVID, and literally built it from the ground up. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm old and I didn't actually get out a pick and shovel and to build it, but I mean, the, the process has been ongoing as, as we built the hospital. This first stage is just, not just, the first stage is an, a small emergency department and then what we'd call an urgent care or an outpatient setting um, north of the capital city, which is Conakry in Guinea. Um, so the suburbs, if you will, um, out in the jungle suburbs um, outside of the capital city. And it's really got a very small medical staff, um, nursing staff. And, and we can talk a little bit more about who makes it all up and how it works. But, but the basic hospital um, is the first pediatric hospital in the country of Guinea, West Africa. And the fascinating thing for me was is that people would ask me in country, they would say, well, why are you building a hospital for, for children? And I, I'd sort of twitch a little bit, like I'd, I'm not sure how to answer that. It's, they're our future, they're critical, um, we can intervene in their lives. My goodness, there's, 
like a thousand reasons that we should have a children's hospital here. But it was a foreign concept because I think, um, and we can talk about some numbers in a, in a minute, but, but I think the, the importance of children is a little different than, than what I was used to. Well, yeah, definitely that, that question, right? It seems that's something that over here, we don't, we don't really think about that. Uh, and I'm being asked that, um, and I know maybe you can also, cause I was reading the article also, uh, can you touch a little bit? I know that uh, you you touch on on the founders of, of the hospital, and, and so can you talk more about that? Sure, that's a it's a great story. Um, the hospital is supported by the Anglican Church as well as private donations, but the founders were two medical students who went to Dallas, met there in Dallas, um, Courtney and Rachel. Rachel went on to be a cardiologist. Courtney became a general pediatrician. They worked well together and decided they needed to do something that made a difference. So they were both married, had children, decided to go to France, to Paris for two years to learn the language of French, and then moved to Guinea, where Rachel's father had, had set up a small mission to help the children in Guinea. So the first thing that we built at the hospital was a place for them to live as they took their entire families and moved to the jungle of Guinea. Um, they're very different, but um, perfectly complementary, um, young, well-trained, US-trained um, pediatricians um, really on a mission. Wow! Yes, and you know what a what a change, right? So they they moved over there and completely along with their family. So it's definitely, but um, it was an, an adjustment. And we'll talk about your experience over there as well in a minute. So how do you find out about this hospital, and and how do you you know you got involved with it? So there's um there's a group of microbiologists that have a list serve with the American Society for Microbiology, and a list serve may be an old term, but you know, it's a bunch of guys who, not guys, a bunch of people around the world who ask questions, share experience. Um, there's a bunch of parasitologists and mycologists, and all of us have questions that we have no idea how to answer. So we can put it out there, and the universe answers. So um, a microbiologist had worked with Courtney and Rachel in Dallas and posted that they were going to start building this hospital, and they needed... Uh, a nursing director, a pharmacist, and a laboratory person, predominantly microbiologist. And so this went out to 250 people and nobody answered. So it sat there for a while and I, I read it and I went, yeah, that's nice. Well, then they, they put it again, sort of like, maybe you didn't hear me, but they, they sort of need some help. And I sat there again and I was like, okay, who needs to go, who could do this job in Africa, right? Well, it's, they're looking for two months or so in country in Guinea a year. So it has to be someone who can really be flexible in their time. Guinea's not, well, Guinea's one of the poorest countries in the world. So there's, it's not a vacation spot. There's nothing nice about it. You wouldn't really ever take your family there unless you really had to. Um, it's expensive to travel there. And I think most importantly, and I think the reason that I fit was the microbiology is not sophisticated at all. 
In fact, my colleagues ask me like, so what kind of molecular methods are you bringing on board? And the answer is none. Um, imagine what a laboratory would look like in 1930 or 1940. And so I'm not that old, thank you very much, but classically trained in basic, basic microbiology, basic parasitology, you know, um, I had to help them buy a microscope and ship it over there so that we had a microscope. And I'll tell you some stories in a second, but, but many of the microscopes there still have the mirrors to catch the light from the window to shine up through the specimen. So, so it's so basic. And so, um, and, and a lot of my colleagues are brilliantly trained molecular microbiologists, right? But that's not what's needed at all. So, I don't want to call it providence because that sort of frightens me as a term, but, but the universe sort of conspired in that I was probably the best fit at the time. So I started emailing back and forth with them to help them begin the process. COVID hit and we just did email for a couple of years. But then finally, my older son said to me one day, he said, you know, you've talked about this for a decade, but like, are you going to really go? Ouch, ouch, children's calling me out. Um, so the answer to his question was, yes, I am. And so that's when I made arrangements to make my first visit um, last fall to actually go on site. Okay, yeah, and I know that you mentioned like, when I read the article that, yeah, because um, definitely, you know, with COVID, your responsibilities, you were very busy at the hospital. So then, you know, it came a time where kind of like just when it finally slowed down enough that you were able to get there. So, and, you know, you talked about the, the expensive travel. I know you mentioned that you had a one flight, I think, to Paris. And then from there, you got to Guinea. So, so you get there, you fly. So what was your impression when you got there? So we got there at night. The first time, in the, we, the first time I went into the country, we got there at night. So really wasn't much to see. Um, but the first impressions were that the roads and the crowds of people Um, were more than I'd ever seen before in my life, in the, in the, essentially in the dark, if you will. But the, the hospital is about 15, 20 miles from the airport, and it took us three hours. And part of that is driving through the capital city. But the potholes were so big that, that as a motorcycle would go by, most of the motorcycle would disappear down into the pothole and then come up and out the other side. Um, we're driving in a massive truck with ground clearance that, that I had to step up a couple of steps to get into this truck to just maneuver on the roads. Um, it was hot and steamy. Um, it smelled of burning garbage. And um, this road trip was, was staggering um, until we got to the compound at the hospital. The first impressions were, were disbelief. I never really experienced anything like it in my life. So we got there, stumbled into bed, got up the next morning, and the hospital is in, inside of a compound, so it's a sort of a walled area. But the mountains are the backdrop with gorgeous jungles, birds and monkeys in the trees, and the sun is coming up you know, across the, across the tops of the trees, utterly gorgeous. You know, um, again, unbelievably beautiful, like in a movie, in contrast to the night before. 
And that was my entire experience was this amazing set of contrasts between abject poverty, garbage, burning piles of trash, um, poverty I've never seen like that before, and the smell and the heat, um, and then gorgeous, gorgeous country and lovely people that welcomed me from the minute I walked in. Wow, yeah, definitely sounds like right quite the experience. Um, so you mentioned that so you when you got there, you went ahead and you saw some some laboratories, right? So can you tell us about overall, you know, when, when you saw them, what were they like, you know, what kind of instrumentation? So what, what did you see? Absolutely. So that was one of my first tasks was to see what um, what other laboratories were operating like. And so I went to a, a private hospital laboratory that was well-funded, you know, a very pretty hospital in the city uh, for the affluent. And then I went to a public hospital, and I can tell you more about the public hospital. In fact, I'd really like to tell you about it. And then a small, tiny clinic that was run by another church group that had been there for about 20 years. So the, the contrast is, is that the, the fancy hospital, the nice hospital, um, was all painted beautifully. Um, they, they wore um, lab coats that were I was, they're starched. They had to have been. They're just perfectly white, and you know all, all the little seams are perfect. And um, they had BioMiru equipment, so they had really, they were the small versions, but they were the state-of-the-art of a Vitec Mini and a small blood culture instrument, and um, they had plated media. And I went, where did you get plated media? Oh, we import it from Belgium. Okay. So we talked a lot. They were very, very interesting, very helpful. And I said, can I, can I see a blood culture? So they opened up the instrument door, and there was one bottle. And I said, well, why, why is there only one bottle? Well, we have to charge, you know, $50 for a blood culture. Much like we do in the U.S. Well, we charge more than that, but, you know, and they said, there aren't that many people who can really afford it. So what they had was this fabulous facility. Um, I'm not sure how it was funded. They weren't really doing much work um, because most of the population couldn't afford to go there. So next we went to the public hospital and it was funded by the country, by, by Guinea, except they, they lost so much money that they stopped um, outside funding. So the patients have to pay. It's a large sprawling facility with, with buildings that are for adults and buildings that are for children and buildings that are for um, oh, for, for making formula and, and feeding, you know, feeding you know, small babies and, and each of these individual buildings. Um, again, terribly hot. The waiting rooms were outside. People are sitting in the sun or under some shade waiting to get in and the doctor's offices and the neonatal intensive care unit and everything else has open doors and windows. So there's no screens, there's no air conditioning. There may be a a ceiling fan, you know, almost like in a movie, slowly spinning in the ceiling with, with a single light bulb hanging down. 
masses of people waiting to get in. And what I was told was, is that, you know, to bring a child to this, to the state run hospital, the village, the village would need to take up a collection so that the parents could travel and then buy some food and pay for the medical care. And so they'd, they had a bag that, that would go around the village and people would put money in that they could spare so that they would have a little money when they went to the city. And it seemed like there were people in line and there were people who didn't have to stand in line. And I think money changed hands so that you could really get in to see someone to give you help. And, you know, the neonatal intensive care unit had a, an incubator, a classic incubator, plastic with the reach in hands and the rest of it. But it didn't work. There was no power. So it was a plastic box for a small baby. So they, they just didn't have the structure. The, the microbiology laboratory there had a, a microscope, um, two little chemistry analyzers, uh, like benchtop uh, point of care analyzers. And that was the entire lab for the entire neonatal unit. And on the floor, holding the door open, was a Zeiss microscope, a gorgeous Zeiss. And I looked down and I, I asked someone, I said, well, why is the microscope holding the door open? Well, the switch may have gone bad or the bulb blew out and we can't really repair it. So, so you know, we just don't know. Um, there was a, a malnutrition unit that had an emergency room. And I said, well, malnutrition is not an emergency. Well... That's where the children come to see if we can get them stabilized so that we can put them in the malnutrition unit. Well, I, I still don't understand. Well, they don't always make it, and we can't really invest so much in a baby that's not going to make it. I, I've actually never seen anything like it. And so I'm an old guy. I'm a cranky old man, actually. Let's be honest. I'm allowed to be. Thank you. Um, and so I'm standing there. And they're explaining this to me as the flies are swirling around and they're cooking. They're, they have a, a wood-burning fire just outside the back door where they're boiling the water to make the baby formula with because none of the water is drinkable. And I stood there and I looked around and I did exactly what I needed to do, which was, was cry. I could, there weren't any words. I was speechless. I just cried. Um, Nobody, no baby should have to die in an emergency room with nobody there to look after them and take care of them because they hadn't had any food in the last three weeks. So that lab was disappointing. The good news is that there's a Swiss neonatologist who's taken them under his wing and out of his own pocket when I was back this most recent time had brought bilirubin lights, gorgeous, state-of-the-art bilirubin lights, six of them, so that at least the neonatology unit could be doing basic bilirubin treatment on a newborn. The next lab was a little lab next to a, a, church, a church hospital, a church clinic. And um, again, there's, the windows are open, but they have glass slats in the window that when you crank them they they open and they close like little wings right 
And um, the guy who ran the lab was was really a very nice guy, really, really funny. He looked at me and he said, oh, you're American. Oh, I only speak English on Saturday. And he said, today's Friday. I said, oh, so if I come back tomorrow, we can speak English? Oh, no, I don't work on Saturday. Okay, let's tell some jokes. Anyway, so what he showed me is, he said, well, let me show you how we do a, uh, let me show you how we do a blood film. So he reached up to a box and pulled out a glass slide, um, washed it in, in the running water of the sink and wiped it off. And he said, we put the sample on here, and then he reached up in the same box and pulled out a, a filthy, dirty cover slip and washed it off because they reused them. And he said, and then we put it together, and if, it, if we don't need a cover slip, if we need it to dry, we just lay it on the glass in the window so that as the breeze comes in, it'll help dry the, the slide. And the equipment that they had for glucose was essentially a, a glucose meter that you would buy to use at home. And, you know, they did some fecal smears and they did some malarial smears and a few other little dipstick tests, and that was the sum total of the lab. And they had big books, big ledgers that they would write in. So they would, one book was to register the patient. Then they would write the results in the ledger. And then the parents had a little paper book, essentially papers stapled together. And the lab would write the results in this little book. That was their medical record. And then they would carry that with them wherever they traveled back and forth to the doctor or another doctor or to the village so that, that their entire medical record was a handwritten pieces of paper that were stapled together. And I said, what happens when the book gets filled? He said, oh, we put it on the shelf and get another book. We can't track anything. So with that as my experience, the first time, I sort of knew where the bar needed to be set, where it was, and then began to think of how to, with baby steps, move up. Because if you're not careful, the weight, the weight of the experience will just push you down. Well, it's, it's all we can do, you know? It's, it's, we have to reuse the slides because that's all we got. And, you know, we do the best we can. Wow, that's, yeah. So that, that bar definitely, yeah, it's, they were barely working with anything. And you mentioned the books and no, so no computers at all. Nothing. Wow. So, okay. So you, then you set up to train and then you mentioned that what you, what they needed, right? Just your basic uh, techniques. And so what do you train them on? Let's talk about the training. So uh, what was the training? Um, I know you mentioned the facilities that you use, you know, what challenges you encounter when training. Sure. So um, the hospital wasn't finished when I went there last November. So they had a guest house, which was actually a nice little apartment. So we set up microbiology training in the living room of my guest house. I had a table and a sink. And then I got a plastic wash tub and lined it with um, what we call chucks or those absorbent pads that we use in patient rooms and on the bench tops and such. And then I took the rack out of the oven and put it on top to put the slides on so we could stain them. Um, and I had, I had purchased a microscope. Well, I, I didn't use my own money, thank you very much, but I, we purchased a microscope that had a, a um, camera mount. 
so that we could capture pictures and so that when I left, they could take pictures and send to me on the internet. So it's a gorgeous Nikon. Um, we had it shipped over. I put it together, um, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't use it because they were afraid it would break or something bad would happen. So I had to convince them first and foremost that it had an LED light source so the bulb won't go out and it's designed to be all these things. So eventually we got comfortable with using a basic microscope in microbiology. But where we started with training, how do you put on gloves? How do you wash your hands? How do you wear a lab coat? One of them I had to loan um, one of the technologists the first day, my shoes, so that they had closed-toed shoes because they, she didn't own any shoes that had closed ends on them. They were all sandals. And most of the time they wanted to go barefoot, but we got past that when we got to the hospital. Um, so as basic as you can begin to imagine is where we started. And then, then we spent a couple of days working with phlebotomy. How do you draw blood? And most of these are finger sticks, but we did venous blood training as well. But how to use a needle, how to, how to make a smear for a blood film. And because they are um, frugal, the thick smear and the thin smear for malaria are on the same slide. So it takes a little bit of a technique to make those slides. So we spent some time making sure we could all make slides. And then we started to stain. Well, the stain was in a concentrate, and we had gotten it imported from, from Belgium. And it called for a 1 to 10 dilution in um, phosphate-buffered deionized water. So I said, okay, well, let's get some deionized water, and then we'll, we'll find someone who we can borrow phosphate buffer from. No one at any of the hospitals that we called had any idea what phosphate buffer was. So they said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll have a motor scooter driver. So a little motor scooter is going to run downtown, and they'll get us some distilled water. So it comes back, and it's an it's a orange container. Um, what we would call a jerry can or something like that. Um, anyway, it it's full of distilled water that, that they brought just for us. And we made the first batch of stain, and it was terrible. And it was like, oh, my God, what's wrong? The colors are wrong. The staining is terrible. Well, the problem solving was I sniffed the container that the water was in that had had gasoline in it before that. So nothing right? Nothing. So they went home that day. And that night, I stayed up, used tap water, and filtered the tap water and boiled the tap water and put it through a coffee filter and let it settle and did all the different variations just to get some water to use as a diluent for the stain for a Gimsa stain. So finally, we got the Gimsa stain to work. And we started doing some stains and began basic microscopy because my goal for the two weeks I was there was malarial smear and a direct stool exam. So we spent a week on malaria and a week on direct stool exams. And I don't mean, you know, formalin and polyvinyl alcohol and, uh, you know, 
trichrome stains. I mean, a little bit of stool with some water on a microscope slide to look for worms moving or obvious eggs and parasites. So I lectured at the time, since the hospital wasn't open, I lectured every day. So we covered traditional MLS lectures, malarial infections and the life cycles, because they all knew malaria, right? They've all seen, they've all had malaria. But the life cycles, where does it come from? How does it propagate? What are the intermediate forms? And these are all people that have worked in a laboratory somewhere. No one had ever t sat them down to just say, let's talk about the whole process. So we went through all the roundworms and the flatworms and the, you know, the flukes and the, whole, the tapeworms. Classic medtech lectures, on average about three or four hours a day, which because everything had to be translated into French, obviously it was a little bit slower going. Um, and I learned something from that we'll talk about in a second. But anyway, that's what we did. A basic med tech start at the very beginning of parasitology. And then we would go in the lab, which was the next room, the dining room. And we would sit at the microscope and each of us would sit and look. And I'd give them unknowns and we'd talk about each one, one at a time. So as you were talking, because you mentioned, so because then, and I read on the article that they, they had the technologists, they had a you know, college education and you mentioned that they had worked at a laboratory in some, some point, but they hadn't done this kind of testing before. Right. And so this time when I went back, so I was just, I just got back a couple of weeks ago. Um, and while I was there, I, I said, well, tell me about your education. One of them had, had made it through high school, which for her, for, for a woman in Guinea was quite the accomplishment to get through high school. And the other three technologists had, had gone through college. And I said, well, what did you do for lab courses in, in your college education? Oh, we didn't go in a lab. I said, what do you mean? Well, they just, they just lectured. Did you have books? Well, you know, a couple. So they passively sat, someone lectured them, they took tests, and that was their laboratory medicine training so which is a terrible way to learn by the way <laughs> having some old guy drone on to you about you know about this and that and the other thing um the lectures i took were nothing you know were endless pictures and then you know sit at the microscope and so their learning their learning wasn't although they said they had a college degree it, it really was nothing like a college degree that i would expect and then didn't really ever give them the actual experience in a laboratory. So, um, and, and then I understood. I probably, starting them as a basic med tech student, was probably starting a little high up on where I should have gone, but I didn't really know at first. And they were able to keep up, but, but what they called an education is just nothing like what we're used to. Yeah, definitely. Um... You know, and as, as the audience know, if you're a medical laboratory scientist, right? So it's always that, you know, there's the lecture component and then, you know, each class has a lab and then we do a clinical rotation. So there's all these things where you get to reinforce those terms that we are learning and then, you know, apply those skills and work on them.
And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy listening to Dr. Morton's story about the pediatric hospital and, and him going over there, his experiences and, and training technologists. As always, I enjoy sharing this information with you. So continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. We do such great work. And next week, I'll be in Boston for ID week. So if you're listening to this um, and you're going definitely and you see me, stop by, say hi. Thank you for the support. Thank you for downloading episodes. So as always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.